0: I'm going to draw from these lame jokes. So two guys from a church go hiking in the Kananaskis country. And sadly, soon into their journey, they encounter, yes, a grizzly bear. Still in the distance, but rapidly approaching, the one fellow pulls off his backpack. He begins to exchange his hiking shoes for runners. The friend exclaims, You can't possibly think you can outrun a bear, do you? They can reach the speeds of a horse. To which he replies, I don't have to outrun the bear, just you. And with that, he was gone. Sure enough, the bear catches the slower runner and pins him to the ground. And in desperation, the man throws up a prayer. Lord, please make this a Christian bear. And on cue, the bear retracts, puts his paws together. And the guy's ecstatic. He can't believe it until he heard the prayer. God, thank you for this fine meal. <laughs> Amen. You know, as human beings, we love to personify animals. We attach to them so many times human characteristics and come to believe that they are more like us than they really are. Now, I love pets. I'm not downgrading. I do it the same. But in some cases, this personification can become really, really dangerous. If you just happen to Google death at the hands of your pets, I know, weird, but I did it. The the list of pets that have turned on their owners is incredible, and it's crazy. But what's more crazy is the type of pets that people have. And wonder why they turn on them. It's not just dogs and cats. We're talking chimpanzees, bears, stags, pythons, mountain lions, pet wolves, all the way. One lady had 70 dogs and some turned on her. And one guy had a hippopotamus. Yes, Humphrey the hippo. Okay, just a month before Humphrey the hippo took out his owner. This is what was his owner was recorded as saying. Humphrey's like a son to me. He's just like a human. Well, they're not. You see, human beings, we have something, we possess something that animals just do not have. A conscience. That's that inner voice, that warning signal, you know, that thought just before you do something really stupid. It's lingering there. And that's a gift from God. But there are many in our day and in our culture who would really rather not have that gift. Because why? They don't want to live with guilt. It's such a negative concept. They would tell you, you know, it's hard enough to have this strong self-image. As one author put it, he says, guilt is nothing but a neurosis. A number of popular therapists characterized guilt as a usually groundless emotion that has the potential of taking all the fun out of life. And so we get advice from this guilt-free camp that shouts, quit being so tough on yourself. Stop pleading guilty. It's not your fault. Even Ann Landers, I know, dating myself, wrote this. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Too bad, but be assured. The agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. So if you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, maybe downright evil and rotten, the negative feelings you have, well, you gotta think opposite of that. You gotta, you gotta think of yourself as just being a really good person. You can't pollute your mind with these debilitating thoughts that you might actually be guilty of something. Because that's just crazy. So is it any wonder then words like sin, and repentance, and contrition, and atonement, and restitution, and redemption, when we use them they almost sound outdated few years back, I had a young guy from Montreal, French guy, taught me a French word every single day. I forgot them all, basically. But at one of our many discussions, because he had no real concept of God in church, he stopped me in the middle of our conversation because I used a word he did not recognize. You know what that word was? Sin. He says, sin. Sin. What's sin? So here's a question. If no one is ever supposed to feel guilty, how can anyone be a sinner? Maybe that's the idea. Sinner sounds dated anyways, archaic. It's hurtful, that's for sure. And so they would say avoid such nonsense. In fact, let's, let's add a twist to this whole directional thinking. You're not guilty, you're simply a victim. Why victim? Because victims are not responsible for what they do. They're simply, well, casualties of whatever happened to them. So, for example, a man was shot and paralyzed while committing a burglary in New York. He recovered damages from the store owner who shot him. His attorney, this is what they told the jury, said, First, this man was a victim of society driven by economic disadvantages. Then the lawyer said he's a victim of insensitivity of the man and the degree that he went to who shot him. And because of that man's callous disregard for this thief's plight as a victim, the poor criminal will now be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. So he obviously deserves some type of redress and the jury agreed. The store owner ended up paying a very large settlement. And by the way, several months later, the same man still in a wheelchair was arrested while committing another robbery. But this is nothing new. We know right from the beginning of Genesis with Adam and Eve. We've been trying to avoid guilt and shame and all the feelings that come along with that. So we read Adam and Eve answered God because he had caught them and said, hey, what are you guys doing here eating of the tree of good and knowledge? And we read, and the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit to me. So I ate it. What are you going to do? And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, wow, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Israelites had sinned against God by worshiping a golden calf. We know the story at the base of Mount Sinai. And we know that Aaron, instead of taking any responsibility for the leadership that was given to him, begins to point fingers as well and make some very weird suggestions. And so we read in Exodus, he says, Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It just came out. It birthed. That's like saying, but officer. I reached in my pocket and out came this loaded revolver. I have no idea how it got there and how it went off. That's why we read the scripture tell us in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And what could be more deceptive than I'm not guilty. I'm just sick. Remove the reality of guilt and sin and all the baggage that comes along with it. And voila, life can be good. This line of thinking is even reflected in our hatred toward accountability. I at least had one lady in one of my churches that was honest about it, and she says, I don't want to become a member. And I says, why? Because, she says, because then I'm going to be held accountable. And so we look at our world and our culture and we see this rapid disappearance of the willingness to accept any resemblance of a degree of personal responsibility. And so popular psychologies program people in a sense to pass the buck, to automatically take some type of defensive stance if we're ever confronted with negative consequences resulting from our own actions. They are routinely taught to maybe put the blame somewhere else on anyone, on anything other than themselves. Accepting responsibility, they are taught, well, the world would merely say and lead us to feelings of guilt, and that's not a good thing. That's unproductive. Guilt is unfulfilling. And so to move on, we talk about self-forgiveness. We talk about placing the blame, possibly, on our DNA. Maybe it was a bad childhood. Maybe it's a rotten marriage. Maybe it's the stress that I'm put under. Maybe it's the physical and mental. It's COVID. That's what it is and so on. Now again, I'm not saying we are not victims ever. There are reasons why some of us struggle with issues related to our past. But in this whole process, what we're forgetting in the whole picture is what the Scriptures say in Romans, that we're all sinners, And because of this sin, the only true remedy involves repentance, confession, restitution. And when we simply claim victim status, we're minimizing the personal guilt that is inherent with misbehavior. You can't shun personal responsibility because the bottom line is there is no help for those who deny responsibility for their own behavior let me give you scripture first john 1 8 9 if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and guess what the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins he's faithful he's just he will forgive us our sins he will purify us from all unrighteousness That's why one of the great thinkers of our time, J.I. Packer, once said, an educated, sensitive conscience is God's monitor. It alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or what we plan to do. forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, makes us feel guilt, shame, fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve. When we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints, Satan's strategy, by the way, is to corrupt, desensitize, and I love this line, and if possible, kill our consciences. Way back in the 17th century, Richard Sibbs wrote, The conscience is the soul reflecting upon itself. See, that's where we differ as human beings and versus the animal kingdom when we, in a sense, I believe reflect the very image of God. And what is that? That you and I can contemplate our own actions. We can sit back and we can make moral evaluations. It is this innate ability to be able to sense that something is right and something is wrong. And this includes everyone, even the most rebellious of humanity, has a conscience. And that's why the Apostle Paul once wrote again in Romans, talking about people who weren't under the teachings, and he said, they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences bearing witness and their thoughts, now accusing, now defending them. Now, understand, our conscience is not the voice of God. It's not the Holy Spirit, in that sense, speaking to you. It is not the law of God. It is simply a gift from God, a human faculty that judges our actions, our thoughts, by the light of the highest standard that we perceive. And when we go against that standard, we violate our conscience. And so it's triggered. It begins to condemn us. We get feelings of shame and anguish and, and regret and anxiety and disgrace and, and fear starts to build up. See, the word conscience is a combination of two Latin words, to know and together. It's found more than 30 times in the New Testament. Basically, conscience is knowledge together with oneself. In other words, Conscience knows our inner motives. Our conscience knows our true thoughts. Conscience is beyond reason and beyond intellect. Because we may attempt to rationalize what we're doing. We may attempt to justify ourselves in our own mind. But a violated conscience isn't so easily convinced. And that's why in the Hebrew they didn't even make a distinction between conscience and the rest of an inner person. And so the Hebrew word for conscience also typically translated heart. Thus, when Pharaoh hardened his heart, the author was recognizing the callousness of his conscience against God's will. When Scripture spoke of a tender heart, he was talking about a sensitive conscience. The upright in heart are those with a pure conscience. When David cried out, "Create in me, O Lord, a clean heart, he was seeking to have his life and his conscience cleansed. And yet, despite this incredible gift that God hardwired into us, this tremendous warning system put in place, countless numbers respond to this call or warning by attempting to somehow, I'm not liking the feelings I'm getting with this, and so we suppress it. We overrule it. We begin to silence it. How do we do that? We shift the blame. We put our responsibility for our behavior somewhere else. And again, whether it's a childhood trauma, it was a bad parent or other causes that were just out of our control. And so we convince ourselves sometimes, well, it's not sin. It's really a clinical problem here. Not a moral one. No, 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 no. So we rename sin in our day. and We say it's just a disease. It's like you catch it. But here's the problem. It is possible, as I look at Scripture, to nullify the conscience and to take it out of the picture. How? Through repeated abuse. The Apostle Paul spoke of people whose consciences were so convoluted. They were so confused that their glory, he said, was in their shame. (laughs) That's what they took their glory in. They were proud of their immoral and sinful actions. They wore them and these misdeeds as almost like a badge of honor. Now I've run into people like that. And both their mind and their conscience can become so polluted, so defiled, that they cease being able to make a distinction between good and bad, between pure and impure. They, They can't even see it anymore. Because the bar has been lowered so much, what used to bother us has become so familiar to us that it no longer bothers us. And again, I work on the workforce. I hear swearing all the time. I hear it on the news or on the TV and the shows I'm watching doesn't even phase. My wife, who does not, is going, what are you watching? I go, what, what, what? Because I'm just so used to hearing it. We become desensitized. Whether it's swimsuit, styles, humor, language, sexuality, it doesn't matter. We just assume that it is now normal. And so my question this morning, is it really or are consciences becoming eroded? We say these days, well, we're just pushing the envelope. But how far do we push and to what price were we willing to pay? And that's why when Paul was addressing this problem, when at one time he wasn't speaking to the pagans and those who have no clue of what Scripture was. No, he was talking to people who apparently had some connection with God. And so in Titus, he writes about them. He says, in fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God. But look at them. By their actions, they're not proving it. And our conscience can only take so much. After enough violation, the conscience will finally fall silent. Ever ask yourself how certain people could create and and follow through on so many atrocities in this world? You keep abreast of what goes on and and it's mind-boggling. But be forewarned, friends. Even the most defiled conscience will not remain silent forever. When we stand one day in judgment, every person's conscience will side with God, the righteous judge. In other words, every one of us, in a sense, will be betrayed. The worst sin-hardened evildoer will discover before the throne of God that he has a conscience because that conscience is going to testify against him. Let's get a few things straight here. Our conscience is not infallible nor is it a source of revelation between right and wrong. Its role is not to teach us moral and ethical ideals. Our conscience is there to hold us accountable to the highest standards of right and wrong that you and I know. Now, it's noteworthy to know that conscience is also informed by tradition as well as by truth. So the standards... A conscience holds to is not always necessarily biblical. Many folks, we as we all know, are raised and reared under influences that are obviously not based on the Bible. And so our consciences sometimes can even condemn you and I in an area where the Bible doesn't even have an issue with it. It may hold us to the very thing that God says I'm trying to free you from. And that's why one time in Romans, Paul is addressing these people because they were upset that these people were eating certain type of foods and these people who were also faith believers said that's absolutely wrong. What did Peter get from God when he was, God was trying to get a point across about, hey, you're kind of holding some wrong views here, a vision three times. You can eat this food, it's okay. Hey, Peter, you can eat this food, it's okay. So let me draw you another image. For those of you who play a lot of guitar, we know we want calluses sensitivity on these spots are so damaged or wounded badly enough, they basically become impervious impervious to any feelings. And we go, that's a good thing, especially when you're trying to play guitar. But do you realize, for many of us, the same thing has occurred with regards to our conscience, which is not a good thing. Paul wrote to Timothy, warning them of this very truth, He said, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Psychopaths, serial killers, pathological liars, other people who seem to lack any sense of moral ideas. They're extreme examples of people who have ruined or desensitized their consciences. But the conscience is this incredible, inextricable part of our human soul. And even though it can be hardened, even though it can be cauterized, even though it can be somehow put into this apparent dormancy, the conscience continues to store up evidence in our lives that will one day be used as a testimony to condemn the guilty soul. John MacArthur put it this way, the conscience is privy to all our secret thoughts and motives. It is therefore a more accurate and more formidable witness in the soul's courtroom than any external observer. You can sit in front of a therapist that tells you you're good and it's not your fault and not to feel guilty. You can pass it through their eyes, but you won't trick your conscience and you won't trick God. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to end with here. The believer of author of Hebrews puts it as plain as we can go. Hebrews 10:22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So here's what the scripture is going with this. It's not saying, hey, go have a bath, take care of it. It's all going to be cleaned up. No, no, we're talking on a spiritual level, not physical. So he says, here are the steps that you need to take to deal with this whole realm of guilt and peace and joy and anxiety and worry. God says we're not to live like that. So first, the The author says, hey guys, let's draw near to God. We need help, and that help comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Because without Him, we can do nothing. We desperately need Christ in our lives so that we can strive towards and maintain a proper focus of faith. In order that we have a conscience that is perpetually every day being cleansed from that guilt that we throw upon ourselves. And that's only going to happen through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I am the way. And so we read in Hebrews 9. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. Cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We have established that there exists this warning system that is hardwired in us that displays regularly to anyone who would actually listen to it and pay attention that if we were really truly honest with ourselves, we would recognize guilt and sin because that is what is in us a sin nature. That also, like a conscience, is inherent in every single human being. Animals do not feel bad for eating their own. We may. Some don't. But there's more to a sin nature than simply bad addictions. Sin nature doesn't belong just to the worst of the worst. The Scripture tells us it is this nature within us that has this tendency to minimize and to deflect and to project onto others or outright simply deny our part in any wrongdoings. We have to own up. We have to step to the plate and admit truth which is sin. Proverbs 28:13 teaches he who conceals his sins does not prosper but who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. So we know very quickly in the Old Testament that God required blood sacrifices for the atonement of sins. But these sacrifices could do nothing for our conscience. These sacrifices simply demonstrated faith and observance of the, the worshiper coming and doing as he's called to do. It also foreshadowed the death of Christ who would shed his blood as a once and for all perfect sacrifice. And so Christ sacrifice on the cross, therefore accomplished what animals could not do. It only symbolized what Jesus would do. And so Peter wrote, he said, he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. Our sins, basically, in the word they use, is called imputed to him. Imputed is another way of simply saying an account was settled on your behalf. Our sins were put on another. And so Jesus paid the penalty. Thus, conversely, his perfect righteousness then... Unblemished, remember, was the word. His righteousness is imputed upon those who choose to believe. And since the guilt of our sins was entirely erased by his death, and since his unblemished righteousness now is credited to my account and to your account, God says, therefore, you're not guilty. You're not. And you can be viewed and seen as fully righteous. That's the doctrine of justification. So because of this, who can accuse us? Who's going to bring a charge against us? So when Satan accuses us, Jesus is there crying out, no, 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 not guilty. When our sins cry out against us, Jesus is there, no, 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 forgiven, When our conscience would mercilessly condemn us, the blood of Christ is there crying out for our forgiveness. Christ's actions fully satisfy the demands of God's righteousness. So mercy and forgiveness, they're guaranteed for those who receive Christ in humble, repentant faith. And now, when you hear John again, 1 John 1, 9, if... Big word we confess our sins then God is faithful God is just God will forgive your sins and purify us from what all our unrighteousness but there's a warning we never go to verse 10 it then says hey but if we claim if you're bold enough to claim that you're not even a sinner then you're making God out to be a liar and guess what none of those promises are ours And so we need to come before God in humility just like that man that was described as one of the two worshipers, Jesus saw in Luke 18, the one was self-righteous and said, I'm glad I'm not like him. But the other one stood there and he realized he was so gripped by God and his heart was being torn asunder and he recognized and he finally came to a point in his life where he saw himself for who he really, really was and he beat his chest and he cries out, Oh God, have mercy on me a sinner. And if you think about it, his self-image at that moment had never been sounder in his entire life. Completely free of pride. Completely free of all pretenses. He finally saw that there was absolutely nothing I can do to earn God's favor except plead for mercy. And in the eyes of God, Christ In his own words who gave that said, I tell you that this man, this man, he went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Secondly, we need to learn to love others. If you've wronged someone, basically make it right. We know that living in community creates the potential for almost most of our sins. I often say life would be great if it just wasn't for people. But the bottom line is, most of our sins are related to other people in some fashion. And that's why the Bible and Scripture is very key in getting things right with others. And that's why we read in Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you're doing church, if you're offering gifts at the altar, you're singing wonderfully and loud, maybe out of tune, but you're doing great, but yet your brother has something against you, Stop. Leave God for that moment and go settle it. And then come back. That's a that's incredible picture of priority for God, is it not? God is saying, hey, before you try to impress me any further, get your sins straightened out. Talk. How important is this? I shared this with my wife the other day when we talked about family and the inability un- to forgive. And I said, boy, we callously walk past that verse in Matthew that, where God tells us that if you can't forgive others in Matthew 6, then God says, I can't forgive you. Ooh, we say that really easy. But boy, try putting that into practice. Thirdly, evaluate your life and if need be, make restitution. Zacchaeus when he met Christ and found life in Christ what was his first response look Lord here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I have cheated anybody out of anything I'll pay them back four times the amount notice Jesus didn't disagree with him he said who complimented his decision It's why the Apostle Paul emphasizes that before we ever partake as a church at the Lord's table, you better examine yourself to make sure that our lives line up with our values and our beliefs, that they all go hand in hand, friends, that this isn't a show. Fourthly, don't procrastinate in clearing your wounded conscience. The Apostle Paul said, so I strive always in acts to keep my conscience clear before God and man. We like to put guilt off. We think that if we don't think about it for long enough, it'll somehow disappear. We know how guilt feelings can persist long after the act has happened and that it can even impact us physically with stress. Clean house, friends. And finally, fifthly, we need to educate our conscience Lack of spiritual knowledge will become an issue. The conscience has got to be persuaded by God's Word, not by our feelings. So how do we assist the conscience? How do we take full advantage of this wiring that God gave us? Well, we need to master biblical truth. That's why I love Alpha, the ability for us to learn the foundations, to be informed, so that we can hold it up against God's Word and not simply traditions and simply what my parents taught me. I still remember fighting my mom when I came back after my first year of Bible college, where I knew everything, by the way, and I came back and I said, Mom, where in the Bible is that? I was a little harsh, but I was just saying, that's a tradition, that's not a truth. Let's make sure we clarify but we need a diet, regular diet of Scripture that will strengthen us every week, especially our weak consciences. And then conversely, we have to avoid the opposite of the wrong moral influences that fill our mind and that corrupt and cripple the conscience on an ongoing basis. In other words, the conscience kind of functions more like a skylight than it does a light bulb. It does not produce its own light. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light that we can expose our conscience to. And so we need to keep it clean. If we cover it up and put it into full darkness, then we're in trouble. And that's why, again, the Apostle Paul spoke of the importance of a clear conscience in 1 Timothy 3, 9, talking to the deacons of the church. He says they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. So let's wrap up these final words from the Apostle Paul in light of what we have learned this morning. Hopefully we'll understand just how important Paul and these instructions were for believers. Philippians 4.8 Brothers, what's true, what's noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, guys, put it into practice and the God of peace then will be with you. And it's a battle. We have our part to play. God has given us the opportunity to overcome. The question always comes back to, will I listen? Will I adhere to the warning system? And will we have the guts to pray as the psalmist pray, search me, O God, and know my heart, conscience. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting let's pray father god thank you it is incredible how you have created the human being you have given us so many opportunities to come and stand in your presence you have given us the right to stand free from guilt and to have hope and peace may we never minimize such an incredible gift We love you. We thank you for all that you have blessed us with. May we learn to be as loving and as forgiving as you are. May we learn to strive together to pursue the things of God that will bring that peace and hope and joy that can be each and every one of ours despite the circumstances. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.